This podcast is brought to you by Salon London as part of our sex and drugs and rock and roll season. Here is Professor David Nutt. He came to the Salon to explain the truth about drugs. So, yeah, Helen, I had a conversation with Helen and she said, what's your title? I said, we should probably, if you want to talk, we can talk about this book and the contents of the book. But I thought we'd talk about the truth about drugs. I thought it was a sufficiently challenging thing to uh, keep you all awake. Now, unlike the previous speaker, I... I don't have any free samples. <laughs> however, 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 the good news is this. We do lots of studies on interesting drugs. And if you send me an email and volunteer, provided you meet the criteria, which sounds like you might, uh, we can put, you can go into studies if you're interested in contributing to the, our understanding of the brain science of drugs. So feel free to, uh, to approach me afterwards. So this has already been mentioned. This is uh, this is my pride and joy. My children bought me this for my 60th, the actual ri- original for my 60th birthday. Uh, this is this caricature of me being sacked, and uh, it's uh, it's true. Except that psychiatrists don't wear white coats. That's just a myth that's put out by the media. But apart from that, it is true. That's the book of cannabis falling from my hand. And the, the real debate was this argument between me and the government about where the scales of justice lie. And you see here the caricaturist has put beer and fags weighing down more than these strange green chemicals in plastic bags. And and that's what I was saying, that this the burden of harm comes from these drugs rather than these drugs. There's a very interesting juxtaposition on this front page. There's this guy up here. Now, I mean, actually, most of you are too young to remember Andre Agassi. <laughs> he was the uh, the Murray of his day. And uh, when he published his biography, he confessed to taking crystal meth. And it's peculiarly appropriate that the two are on the front page, because this, this man sells thousands more copies of his book because he says he takes drugs. Yeah, and I get sacked for defending him. And there's a sort of weirdness about that, but I haven't got time to go into it. But, but it's, uh, it shows that there is a peculiar lack of reason and rationality about the way we think about drugs. We're fascinated by celebrities who take them and, uh, and we destroy their careers if we find them taking them, uh, if they're in sports. Um, but we're still you know, interested enough to know why they take them so we buy their books. So I want to go through some key questions tonight uh, because I'm going to tell you the truth about drugs. So we've got to define what a drug is. And perhaps appropriately also, who should say what a drug is? I mean, is there a, is it just a scientific definition or are there other definitions? And, (laughs) (laughs) you're a good group, that's that's good, that's, you're you're on the board, you need to say no more. So, this is a very, not a very sophisticated advert, but it's a very sophisticated message. It's a message that has been, perpetuated by the drinks industry probably for over a century, trying to continue this idea that alcohol is not a drug, and therefore things, drugs which aren't alcohol are different somehow from alcohol. And they've been hugely successful, and they're still being very powerful in terms of regulating or preventing access to drugs other than alcohol. And it is difficult to get some of the media. This is the, the metro uh, <coughs> reporting a study of ours, uh, and this is a 2008 study, showing they still don't understand that alcohol and cigarettes are not drugs. And of course, th- the reason for that is that they're legal and people 
take the view that if it's legal, it can't be a drug, and if it's illegal, it is a drug. And that is just such a simplistic view. It's hard to believe that that can be held by anyone who could even write an article, even for the Metro. But, <laughs> but unfortunately, it's held, at least it's, whether it's held, but it's certainly espoused, it's perpetuated by many politicians. And that's one of the great challenges, and that was one of the reasons I was sacked, because people do not want to know the truth about drugs. They want to stick in this traditional view that what we've got is okay, and what we might have, or other people, particularly people, young people might use, is wrong. So this is my definition of what a drug is. <laughs> and um, Jackie Smith, when she became Home Secretary, was asked the question, you know, did you take drugs when you were a student? And she said, well, I, I smoked cannabis, but I didn't enjoy it. And you think, kind of, what's the point, Jackie? Was it, was it, a, was it an experiment? Uh, I think it was because in those days you had to do that to get into the Labour Party in Oxford University. <laughs> and there's David Cameron with this wonderful statement. I did things when young that I shouldn't have. We all did. And this is what's called the Eton We. Uh, <laughs> otherwise known as the Tory front bench. And, um, and what they did was a variety of drugs. And the interesting thing is, although David won't tell us what he did, we know what he did. And all the drugs... David was a great aficionado of any drug that began with the same letter as his surname. And there are several. <laughs> So what would I say as a, as a psychiatrist, psychopharmacologist? I'd say a drug is a chemical which, when taken, produces physiological changes in the body. And in the context of talking about drugs uh, that are being controlled, we're talking about drugs which get in the brain, and usually drugs that produce pleasurable effects in the brain. This is one of the really interesting challenges. Drugs that get in the brain and aren't pleasurable are very often not banned. And when I sort of present that to politicians, they kind of, they, they don't gain, they don't understand that. You, you know. But, but the, the, the decision making about drugs is very much colored by the fact that people get pleasure. So there's this terrible intersection of kind of the moral principle that you shouldn't enjoy yourself and the harm principle. And they get very, very convoluted and conflated. And it's really critical that we separate those and we have to, Make sure when we're having dialogues about drugs, we're having a dialogue about either harms or moral positions. So my prime example, and you're quite a sophisticated audience, so you might even understand this one. Pufferfish. Any of you ever tried pufferfish in Japan? Yep. Who said it? You had it? No. That's why you're here. Yeah. <laughs> so this is this fish that the Japanese eat. And they... You eat it because it has a, an enormously poisonous substance called tetrodotoxin in it. And you eat enough so that you know it's affecting you because you get a numb mouth. And that's the real pleasure of the fish. About six people a year die in Japan of eating too much. And it takes about three years for the chefs to be able to prepare it. That's such a frisky fish. They have to, have to eat the first one that they've prepared to prove that they can do it properly. But we don't ban that because it's the province of very rich people in a strange country. But, but we could, because it probably, in Japan, probably kills more people than ecstasy. But because it's 
because it's seen as a, as a sort of challenge rather than a, a simple pleasure, it's, uh, it's not controlled. So there is this always this peculiar tension between what, what society wants, what young people want, and what tradition tells us. So we have to deconstruct those. And one way of doing that is to look at the real harms of drugs. So here's the data, the most recent data we have in terms of deaths from drugs in the UK. About 80,000 people a year die of tobacco-related uh, harm, 8,000 from alcohol. If you look at opiates, it's about 1,000, paracetamol 200, cocaine about 180, amphetamines about 30, cannabis about 10, ecstasy about 10, methadone similarly very low. So if you're seriously interested in harm, you do you deal with tobacco. Or if you're interested in harm to young people, you deal with alcohol. But most of the debate about drugs is around these drugs. And I think that's actually a deliberate attempt by government to avoid these, the issues around these. Because these are challenging, because the people that sell these make a lot of money and have very powerful lobby groups. So if we keep the media and keep the, the, the general public interested in these drugs, they will not get concerned about these. I think it's a, it's a sort of sophisticated smokescreen. Some drugs are very, very dangerous. I, I, I want to make, show this slide just to emphasize that people often say, well, if heroin was supplied clean, people wouldn't die. Well, they wouldn't die of AIDS, that's true. But they would still die because heroin stops you breathing. So, so of all the drugs you want to avoid anyone, yourself or your friends, taking, heroin is the drug to avoid. Injecting heroin is one of the most dangerous things you can do. It's probably like riding bareback on one leg <laughs> and then jumping over 50. So heroin is a very dangerous drug, even if you've got clean supplies. Beyond that, most of the drugs aren't uh, very likely to acutely kill you when you use them. So these are the illegal drugs. What about the legal drugs? Well, there is this paradox that... Uh, Almost as many people will die acutely of one legal drug as will die, for instance, of this illegal drug, cocaine. And that's alcohol. And, and this is Amy Winehouse. You obviously all know who she is. When I, when I showed this slide, I gave a talk um, in, in Italy a few weeks ago. And there were a group of Australians there. And they said, oh, we didn't know she died of alcohol poisoning. We thought she died of drugs. And in fact, what's interesting about Amy's death is that there, has, there was a real opportunity to tell the world that alcohol will kill you if you drink too much. She drank about a litre of vodka, blood alcohol level about 450. So sort of five and a half times the legal dr driving limit. And she died suddenly as a result of that. What's also very interesting about Amy is that she died in what the current government policy tells us is the desired state, which is called recovery. So she had stopped drinking and stopped taking other drugs. She was clean, she was dry, and she relapsed and within a few hours was dead. And that's very typical. This concept that you recover from addiction and life is then a bed of roses is naive. If it works, it's great. It all, pretty much, for all drugs, getting off them is possible, 
but relapse using their addiction more vulnerable. So many people who are clean, recovered from heroin, as soon as they relapse, they die because they've lost tolerance, just as she did. So she really exemplifies two things, the, the, the toxicity of alcohol, the failure of people to, to use her as an example of young people dying of alcohol poisoning, and also the challenge of this so-called recovery agenda, because the current government policy wants to get rid of all kinds of treatment for addiction, other than acute abstinence-based, so detox and abstinence, and that will lead to more deaths like her. And as I say, alcohol kills people. We lost a student last year. Most universities, one student dies every year or so from alcohol poisoning. In fact, three young people a week die of alcohol overdose. They just poison themselves to death with alcohol. And about about ten die of accidents from being drunk. They are fall under cars or drive cars into trees or ditches, etc. And one of the reasons I argued and got sacked by the government was arguing continuously that cannabis is actually safer than alcohol. No one's ever died of a cannabis overdose. And the other thing for, for women, alcohol is the most significant factor in date rate. The ACMD in 2004 did a review, did research in several police centres as well as looked at the literature. Almost all cases of date rape have got alcohol associated. About half have got alcohol plus some other drug. But alcohol is far and away the most dangerous drug in terms of making women vulnerable. And over the last 40 years, we've seen a tidal wave of alcohol-related deaths through the liver disease. So what you see here, these coloured lines are the likelihood of anyone in this country dying from a whole range of disorders, blood disorders, diabetes, endocrine disorders, respiratory disorders, etc. You see, all these coloured lines here go down. So we're going back from 1970 to 2006. They're all going down. And that's because we're getting healthier as a population and medicine's getting better. There's only one organ system which is but the trend, and that's liver disease. So heart disease is halved in that period, and liver disease got up fivefold. This is the tidal wave of, I mean, in men living in Britain now, in 10 years, liver disease will kill more men than heart disease. And almost all this is driven by alcohol. 80% of it. And you'd think that something that is so opposite in direction to the overall health trend would actually capture the attention of people like the health secretary. Uh, but even when you showed him this graph, he would not believe that alcohol was something he should do something about. And in fact, this is most, this is a terrifying. Now, now in this country, alcohol is the most common reason for death in men between 16 and uh, 54 in this country. It's overtaken road traffic accidents, cancer, and suicide. So probably in this room, there aren't many men in this room, but the ones that are there, that's the most likely reason you're going to die before you're 55. And that will be through liver disease or other cancers caused by alcohol. One of the reasons we have this rising, rising tide of alcohol deaths is because we have absolutely no impact on drinking in young people. So these are data going back for over 17 years now, looking at the proportion of 15-year-olds who are drunk or intoxicated at least once a month. And the latest data we have, it's 50%. It's been 50% ever. So if people are getting this drunk at 15, it doesn't take more than about 20 years before 
that level of alcohol consumption starts to cause serious organ problems. There's also a lot of hysteria about drugs damaging the brain. You, you may have heard so-called scientists say things like a single spliff will kill a million cells in your hippocampus. Um, but what you don't hear people saying is that the drug which damages the brain above any other is alcohol. So these are images from our ongoing studies. And these are people with alcohol addiction, alcohol dependence, who are actually clean at present. They've, they've stopped drinking. And they're in a study that we're doing with Barbara and her team in Oxford, in Cambridge, sorry, and Manchester. And we're studying them to try to find drugs to stop them relaxing, because we don't want the, the problems that Amy Winehouse. And you discover that this population of people who can consent to go into a complex study, who can find their way to the Hammersmith Hospital or to Cambridge to be scanned, they have brains which are more damaged than many people with Alzheimer's disease. Now, there's no other drug which produces this kind of damage. And, and this, shows, this shows the relationship between alcohol consumption and a whole range of disorders. These are cancers of the lips, of the esophagus, of the colon, of the... I can't read it anymore, what's that? Rectum liver, laryngeal, breast cancer, etc. And you can see that all, in all of these, there is an increase in cancer with increased alcohol consumption. And for some, it's very steep. And for others, it's fatter. So overall, alcohol is a serious carcinogen. Um, but the reason we didn't act, the Blair government had a, a cabinet review of drugs back in the early 2000s. And they knew all this data then. And they looked at it all and they said, well, that's true, but look, here. In men, for cardiovascular disease, ischemic heart disease, there's a slight fall here. So there's a beneficial effect of alcohol. Here. And that was the reason they didn't act. They said, well, we can't balance this against the rest of this. And seriously, that was the level of the debate. And of course, the drinks industry had bangs on all the time about the cardioprotective effect of alcohol. But it, for no age, and neither gender, did the, the, the benefits of alcohol ever exceed the harms. And for young people, the, the beneficial effects were non-existent. And these are the people who are most vulnerable to the effects of alcohol. So what about cannabis? This is the, one of the key comparisons at the time, and it still is at present, because... We have quite a punitive attitude to cannabis, not only criminalizing a million young people for possession, but also preventing access of the cannabis for medicinal use. So this is Alan Johnson, the man that sacked me. This is me. This is not to suggest he ever smoked a spliff, by the way. What's interesting is the way in which cannabis use has changed over the last 40 years. So going back to almost the same time as we saw the rise in alcohol-related liver deaths, we see there's been a 20-fold increase in cannabis use over the last 40 years. Now, the, the five-fold increase in liver deaths was paralleled by about a two-fold increase in drinking. There's a very non-linear relationship. Alcohol has a, a, a parabolic relationship. The more you consume, the much more harm you get. You might think with a 20-fold increase in the number of people using cannabis, there might be some measure of harms which you could find. Now, I showed you the deaths are non-negligible. 
Uh, and the government was desperate to reclassify cannabis from C to D um, under Jackie Smith and then Alan Johnson. And, um, and they clung on to this idea that cannabis causes schizophrenia. And they clung on to it, even though we used the best database we have. This is the MRC general practice database in the UK. It, has, it looks at about a third of the population through general practice. And we showed that there was no relationship. A 20-fold increase in cannabis use had no impact whatsoever on the incidence or prevalence of psychosis or schizophrenia. None whatsoever. And the same is true in all Western countries where there's been a, this massive increase in cannabis use. There is no relationship between cannabis use and having schizophrenia. And in fact, we, if, if you take the most, uh, re the best estimate from the Swedish conscript study, you can predict that if you've got to stop 5,000 young men and 7,000 young women from ever smoking cannabis to stop one case of schizophrenia. So, so this is not a, an important public health problem. And it's certainly not a problem you can address by criminalizing a million young people. But that's what we did. That's what this government, the last government did. It decided it wanted to make a statement about cannabis, even though it had no health harms of any value to justify it. But it was a smokescreen. It was a moral decision that they, they used some very, very uh, inadequate data to justify. And over the years, we've seen this kind of issues, these kind of irrational approaches to drugs repeat themselves. The cycles of criticism of drugs and banning of drugs uh, has been, you know, well, it existed really for the last several hundred years. And while I was working with the ACMD, I decided to set up a scheme where we could have a much more systematic way of appraising drug harms. And we, from first principles, we determined that there were actually 16 ways in which a drug can harm you. There are nine ways in which you can harm the person and seven ways it can harm others. And we the, um, a very detailed analysis of these different harms. And then we applied these to 20 drugs. And we used a technique I haven't got time to go into called multi-criteria decision analysis, which is the best way, way of comparing different sorts of harms. We did this in a, as I say, in a very detailed, systematic way. And we came up with this result, which is um, quite a well-known graph now. And this graph shows the ranking of harms and a relative the proportional uh, contribution of different drugs in terms of their harms. The blue is the harm to the user, and the red is the harm to society. And I have to say, I was surprised, uh, although now I can understand why, alcohol came out as the most harmful drug in the UK. Largely because this huge red bar here is the harm to society. And these are the harms from, from health harms, traffic accidents. So much violence, over half of all violence is related to drink, whether that's domestic violence or other interpersonal violence, etc. In terms of the harm to the user, crack, crystal meth, heroin come out higher. But overall, this is the drug which is really causing the greatest harm to British society. This is the drug we should be focusing our health uh, improvement efforts on. You go to cannabis, it's considerably less harmful than, than alcohol. If you go to drugs like ecstasy, there's very little harm. So this is where the, the target of intervention should be. And what's also interesting, if you look at the, the harms of the different drugs and, and, and plot them against the classification of drugs under the Misuse of Drugs, that A, B, C, and unclassified, you see there is no relationship. 
So the Misuse of Drugs Act is supposedly a scientific instrument to determine the penalties for using drugs of different harms. And it bears no relationship whatsoever to the harms of drugs. And so it's pretty obvious, therefore, the law is incorrect. And an incorrect law is an unjust law. And also, the, the, the way in which the Act controls uh, the way we do research and treatment means that there's a tremendous burden, there's a tremendous hurdle to overcome in order to be able to explore, let alone fully utilize, any benefits from these drugs. And this is something I've got quite exercised about in recent years, and something I'm sort of championing now as a, a very necessary change we've got to make in order to benefit society through looking at the, the potential utility of some of these drugs which have been banned on the false premise that they're harmful. And I'm particularly interested in psychedelics, and these are two very famous, these are the two, much more than famous, these are the two most important Nobel Prize winners in, in medicine and physiology ever. These are the two people that transformed the way we live. This is the man that discovered the double helix and DNA, and this is the guy that worked out how we could measure it. This guy discovered the PCR, polymerase change reaction. That's the reaction that allows you to know whether your burger's got cow or horse DNA in it. This is the guy, this is everything we do in life sciences is determined. And Carey was totally explicit. His insight, he discovered the polymerase chain reaction whilst under an LSD trip. Totally. He says, he says I wouldn't have got the Nobel Prize if not for, not, not for LSD. Crick is different. Crick got the Nobel Prize and then turned to LSD. And then, and then left Cambridge and went to work in the States, where he spent the rest of his life trying to understand consciousness, um, because it was his, that was the only thing left to crack. And what's interesting is that if you look at many banned drugs, you'll find that they have potential for treatments. Cannabis, there are 80 products in the cannabis plant, almost none of which have been explored as possible treatments, because cannabis is illegal. Ecstasy, I'll talk about psilocybin, may have roles in depression, OCD, LSD for terminal illness and for addiction. And mephedrone, the most recent one, you know, and, and cathinone and cat, was actually developed as a treatment for addiction before it got banned. And once it's been banned, it will never be developed because, because working with drugs which are illegal is so much more expensive and, and challenging than working with drugs that are. So here's an example of LSD. So, yeah, LSD, before it was banned in 1964, there were six clinical trials, they've recently been meta-analyzed, this is the paper showing that they have quite, LSD had quite a profound effect in terms of the treatment of alcoholism. Here, here you see the meta-analysis, for those of you who see that the, the LSD did better than placebo. In fact, the effect size of LSD and alcoholism is good or better than anything we've got today. But it's not being used, it's 50 years on, none, none, there's not been a single study because the drug was made illegal. People now turn to Ibogaine or Ayahuasca, whereas we do have you know, proper controlled evidence here for LSD. And what's fascinating about LSD is that LSD was banned despite the most important politician in the US at the time, Bobby Kennedy, who would have been prison if he hadn't been assassinated, arguing that there was no need to ban it. But the, the Drug Enforcement Agency in the States was so powerful, it could steamroller 
the ban of a drug like LSD, even though there was massive amount of clinical experience and utility. And that is really chilly to think that you, you, actually the processes which control drugs are beyond even the control of democratically elected uh, members of the, of, of, of the Senate in this case. And I think this is the worst example of research censorship almost in the history of science. And I can only think of one that's worse. And that's this one. And this was this man, Nick Copernicus, this Viennese uh, astronomer who discovered that the in contradiction to the current Catholic teaching, the sun didn't go around the earth, the earth went around the sun. And his books were banned. This man told the world about his books and got burnt at the stake. And this guy proved that the moons of Jupiter went around Jupiter and was stopped from doing any further research. And yeah, the, the ban of drugs, because they're supposedly harmful and illegal, to researchers, I think, is, as I say, is the worst example of research censorship in 200, 300 years. Drugs, without the hot air, minimising the harms of legal and illegal drugs, is available from UIT Cambridge. If you want to hear more about Salon London, we're at www.salon-london.com.